Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talk by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Tim Johnson, a South Australian municipal arborist with more than 20 years' experience in the public sector, and Donald Cameron, a geotechnical engineer from the School of Natural Resources and Built Environment, University of South Australia. This podcast features their talk on trees, stormwater, soil, and civil infrastructure. This talk was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. Thank you to ISA and Arboz for the opportunity to speak here. Trees, stormwater, soil and civil infrastructure, that mouthful there. Uh, I think of that and as a municipal arborist, that is my daily bread and butter. Think of those four components of the built environment and my friend and colleague, Dr. Don Cameron, geotechnical engineer, it's his bread and butter as, as well. So an arborist and an engineer working together, we're looking to try and find some synergies amongst those four components. They, they should work well together. You can see from the logos here, this research we're doing is a, a joint project. Um, University of SA, City of Mitcham, my employer, state government through the NRM board funding some of the construction and the research, and the University of Melbourne. Now, I'm sure you've noticed Dr. Greg Moore, who apologises he can't be here today. He's speaking next door right now. Um, Dr. Greg Moore is co-supervising the academic components of this research. Uh, If anyone here would like to give Dr. Greg a really positive report on this um, presentation, uh, I'll have my checkbook out afterwards. Um, Dr. Greg needs no introduction. You're well aware of his international standing and repute. Dr. Don Cameron here will be speaking in exactly half an hour. Don is to geotechnical and civil engineering as Greg Moore is to arboriculture. Um, So I'm in great company there, feel very privileged. I'm an arborist and every day working with these guys I feel more like an apprentice. Um, I'm studying engineering so I feel like an apprentice fish out of water. It's interesting. Um, This is a work in progress. There's a lot more in the proceedings than we have time to even scratch on briefly here today. So please get the proceedings, read through it, let me know what you think. I appreciate the expertise that I'm looking at here and I want your feedback and your input. Two reasons for that. I want to learn from you. And secondly, I've got to present this to a similar um, conference of engineers in a month's time. And I'd rather hear it from you first. (laughs) So please, get back to me. Is there anyone here who has never stumbled or tripped over a dodgy footpath like that? No hands? Widespread, costly, dangerous. 
Um, that is one of the main drivers of this research. Last decade, we had a 50-year drought. Our trees were dying. Every time we did get a bit of rain, we discharged it out into the sea, right past our tree roots. We hear inappropriate tree species all the time. Do we ever hear inappropriate infrastructure? We should. That's another driver for this research. Uh, you can see some of the, the issues it causes. What can we do about it? You've seen these sorts of things. I'm not going to dwell on them. Um, vegetated swales work well. Detention basins, um, rain gardens, fantastic. But what do you do in a street like this? Established area, sealed from boundary to boundary, no infiltration. What do you do? This is our study site. Where is it? They, they tell me that's the right way up, but since I started this study, I'm not sure which way is up. Um, we are here. Our study site is southern Adelaide. Now, Adelaide in South Australia is the driest state in the driest inhabited continent on the planet. That's critical to our research. Um, but it's a great place to live. Out here we have the Nullarbor Plain, literally no tree uh, for hundreds of kilometres. Uh, probably no arborist active out there. Um, but we do have a tree. Oh, we have a few, in fact. We have some fantastic trees. The local people would have lived in this one for centuries before the Europeans arrived. And the Herbigs in the 1850s lived in this tree for, for quite a while till they built a place up the, the track. Um, they had their first two kids while they were living in that tree. And that's my daughter, who wishes she was born in a tree. But her mum had some reservations, but never mind. Uh, and that has nothing to do with my study at all, but this does. This is Adelaide, the sprawling metropolis. It's about a, a one-mile square CBD in this forest. The suburbs extend 30 kilometres north and 30 kilometres south. You can hardly see them for the trees. Um, Adelaide is now the biggest forest in South Australia, the urban forest. Our research site's six kilometres. It's just behind the canopy here on the, the plains, six kilometres south-southeast. And the Wait Arboretum, home of Treenet, is just out here. You can't see it for the urban forest, um, which proves what they say about us arborists in Adelaide. We can't see the Wait Arboretum for the urban forest. But anyway, uh, our research site. How much water is available for our trees? The little bit that gets in through the telco pits, a little bit through the leaky stormwater pipes on the other side. How do you get funds to do any work in an established street in a tough economic climate. Um, difficult. We were fortunate though. Our street had some problems. We heard about condensation under paving yesterday. This is the sort of problem that results. So we had a, a focus, we had some direction, we had some support, some maintenance money to do some minor works. We've got a very pro-tree um, community in Mitcham and how do you fix things like this without killing the trees? It's a diff difficult position sometimes. So the end result always has to be better than the status quo. So we have to rip that up, cut the roots, pull the tree out. What do we do? What we did was try some permeable paving. Um, bigger would be better, more would be better, more money would, would about cover that. They're only four metres long, they're two metres wide, we've got a tree pit in the side. Um, we put in 12 of them on that sort of layout. Uh, we've put in some infrastructure to monitor what's happening. Um, we'll hole A near the private property, 
borehole B in the tree pit, C under the road carriageway, so we can monitor soil moisture beneath the permeable pavement. Uh, we've put in some infrastructure to extract soil-poor air, so we can check oxygen levels. Um, section AA. Now, this is critical to the presentation. Permeable paving over porous rock screenings. It's 50 millimetres, two inches of fine screenings over in the top one, over four inches, 100 mil of coarse screenings, 20 millimetre. No fines whatsoever. It's highly porous. It's 40% air when it's dry. It's 40% um, water when it's wet. Um, the top design holds over 300 litres of water before any infiltrates or runs off in that small four metre by two metre area. So arid zone, we capture the water and it can take its time to get in. Um, when we excavated these, we are very careful to excavate to the base level, no compaction, put in the coarse screenings, single pass of a vibrating plate, fine screenings, pavers, single pass with a vibrating plate. So distribution of forces through the screenings, we're hoping not to compact the soil. The only difference between the two is the bottom one formed into a swale. There's no room for a swale in our street, so we built one <coughs> under the paving. We're hoping that we'll get most infiltration here, and we're hoping our roots will develop along that channel, parallel to the kerb, parallel to the private property, uh, minimal damage outside of that zone. Um, critical to the pore space is it's um, after drainage under Adelaide's semi-arid climate, we're expecting that to, to desiccate fairly quickly. So we'll have inert rock, 40% air, um, dry, not supporting root growth. That's what we're hoping. So we're hoping we'll get roots below the, the top level, the interface there. We're monitoring this until 2013, then we're going to hopefully put a, a hydrovac transect through and observe the, the root development, but maybe with the way um, radar's going, we might not need to. So two designs, we've got six of each, um, just monitoring the impacts they're having. Uh, those bores, we, sorry, um, a couple of finished examples. Um, most people don't notice and they walk down the street. The tree is Pyrus caleriana chanticleer, um, deciduous to allow maximum infiltration and minimum extraction during the winter. We want as much water as we can possibly get in there to see how bad it can possibly get in terms of the soil, geotechnical impacts, shrinks well, impacts on infrastructure. It's a small example of a worst case scenario. There seems to be a hesitation to use paving, permeable paving, because engineers like to keep the roads dry, the road bases, um, stability, strength, those sorts of things. What happens if we get the water in there? Don't know, let's try it. Uh, there's some porous chanticleer around the corner planted four years earlier. Uh, that's almost the sort of size we're expecting by the time we finish monitoring. We're hoping the root growth would have extended to the, the edges of our permeable pavements. At this stage, we're only a year and a half into it. We've been monitoring for that time. We didn't expect any variation relative to the pavement types. What we've found has surprised us all. Um, so at this stage, it is a work in progress. We've got no conclusions. Um, we've got a few indications, a few observations, and they're, they're counterintuitive, surprising. Um, Dr. Don's going to speak very briefly on the, the geotech effects that we've observed.
So we've got 18 trials along 320 metres of a residential street. It's not a clinical lab analysis, it's a real life, warts and all, in the street observation. And there's problems with that, um, external effects everywhere. Um, we had a, a water main burst the other day, um, service company came in and repaired it. Fortunately it didn't Im impact on our study, it could have. We've got a few other impacts that we'll talk about later. If you notice the first three are fairly clear of surrounding vegetation. Um, the white, by the way, are the controls, green are the level and blue are the, the swale bases. Trials four to nine are fairly close to some mature Celtus australis, so there's some major competition there, um, soil moisture and shading. Ten is opposite a, a large pistachio, it's further away and doesn't seem to draw as much moisture, so there's actually less observed impact on ten. And eleven to eighteen, the trees are more sparse and in a lot of cases further away. So we've got a lot of variability there, which has made it incredibly interesting, just difficult to understand. That's good stuff. Um, before we built the paving, we got the drill in because we like making a mess and we bored lots of holes down to three and a half metres. Taking soil cores as well, we've put over a hundred holes in the street and we haven't hit any services yet. We dropped galvanised steel pipes in those bores three and a half metres deep and they're set at ground level to allow us to put a neutron probe down the bore to give us a, an indication of soil moisture. Anyone here familiar with neutron probes? They emit neutrons, they bounce around on the hydrogen in the, water, in the water in the soil. Some return and are measured by a sensor on the probe. And the, the amount of bounce back is directly proportional to the amount of water in the soil. So you can monitor soil to three and a half metres deep over the, the section any time you like. Uh, there we are, probe on the, the cable. Um, press the button for go, counts for 32 seconds and read the number off the, the dial. Record the numbers and you generate lots of graphs. We, we get so many thousands of, of numbers. Just, just look at this one, for, sorry, the one for a start. Um, we're just going to have a superficial look. The ratio across the top, one is saturated. Further back to the left, as the number decreases, the soil's becoming drier. So to the left is dry, to the right is wet. Um, the three colours are the A, B and C, the three different boreholes. The one point I wanted to show out of this, the top row is a control, centre is a, a level, and the middle row is a swale installation. Could have been any. And the, the columns are just uh, a time difference. The first one's September, um, November 2009, June 2010, etc. If you look at 0.7, take 0.7 as a reference, look down that column. The control is the impermeable pavement. Most of the water runs off that pavement. Most of that graph is to the wet side of 0.7. The bottom two are permeable pavements. They let water in. Most of the graph is to the dry side of 0.7. At that time, most of the permeable soil under the permeable pavements was drier than the soil under the impermeable pavement. Um, end of November, summer. Come to June, same thing, midwinter. What we found is most of the soil <laughs> under most of the permeable pavements is drier, 
particularly below the, the 0.5 and the, the below the one metre, they're drier than the permeable pavements. We're in a, a semi-arid climate, 500 mil rainfall a year, loads of evaporation over summer. Because we've got porous screenings, no capillary block, no compaction, permeable pavements are letting it out, maybe. Maybe the trees are taking it out. We need to extend the, the monitoring and research a little bit more. But that's not what we would have thought. If you take the means, we've taken just a, a recent set a um, couple of weeks ago that we haven't processed yet, but that's 18 months data. Sorry, um, from November to, to March. If you look through the, the means there, the control, the impermeable blue lines are on the, the right-hand side. The soils are generally drier, um, averaged across all the trials. Interesting, isn't it? Don, uh, we're going <laughs> to want an explanation on that. As well as soil moisture, I wanted to have a look at soil oxygen. We had no money, so we went down the shed and we, we made up some voids out of polypropylene wrapped in geotextile and put on a, a nylon pneumatic airline and lowered these into the, the boreholes and recompacted. You can't observe these sorts of things without disturbing them. You physically can't take a sample without boring a hole and exposing three metres to surface oxygen. So. Uh, we let it sit for a year, come back into equilibrium. We've just started to take some readings. Um, draw a sample at the top with a syringe, put it through on an apogee meter. It gives us a, a volumetric oxygen content. We're breathing 20.9 when we came in. Uh, we were expecting to see it decrease down the profile. Loads of issues, loads of concerns with that. We had no budget, we're doing it anyway. If we plot the volumetric content over time, as you'd expect, higher content near the surface, 18%, um, 20%, decreasing down the profile. Um, the confidence you put in these numbers, um, you can make your own assessment depending on the infrastructure impacts and sampling methods and things, but the trends are really interesting. What's causing the variation over the, the spring and summer? Interesting. Um, we've looked at the, the rainfall patterns. It seems to be when the soils get moist, oxygen levels decrease, as you'd expect. Wet soil is less porous, less permeable to, to air and oxygen. Then as it dries out, the, the oxygen levels come up again. So I thought, there's the means of all the sites and in my wisdom or insanity, I before the conference, put on the last set of readings from June. Now we've got two uh, the controls and the permeable swale sites oxygen levels increasing and the, the level sites levels decreasing. The trees in the level sites have grown slightly more, so maybe the downward trend on that one reflects respiration. Don't know. More time, more research needed. Maybe because the base is level, um, the water infiltrates evenly across the whole lot and seals the surface, reduces the, the transfer. It runs off the impermeable, so oxygen through a concrete brick is probably fairly rapid through dry soil is fairly rapid. And the swale, the oxygen's being sampled at the top, maybe that's dry, the moisture's here. So maybe it's respiration, maybe it's drying, maybe it's both. Uh, we need to continue this research. A couple of sites, I've got some really strange numbers. Um, site 11, really low oxygen content. We even drew a zero here. I put a sample on the meter, 0% oxygen by volume. I thought, oh, I must have mucked that up. 
Hang on, if I mucked it up, it'd be atmospheric, 20.9. There's no oxygen in the soil there. And what's really interesting, um, at one metre depth, at 0.5, it's up the top of the chart, as you'd expect. At one metre, it's at the bottom of the chart. And then the deeper levels have a higher content. Um, the gas pipe is around about 900. Uh, it looks like we've got a gas leak there. External influences. This is the real world, it's where we work. So we've got two sites far from optimal because of leaking infrastructure. Um, tree height in blue at planting, red um, in February this year. Uh, interesting trees four to nine where the competition was greatest, have grown the least as you'd expect, but 11 and 16 where we've got soil oxygen problems, gas leaks, growth is really low. We actually had phone calls from the residents there saying the trees had been broken by vandals. Could they have new trees? Well, it's part of our research program. We're going to persevere and see what they do. There's tree 11, broken off to 1,200, and a year later, shot away and, away and growing again. Tree 16, same thing. This is with major gas leaks, zero oxygen in the soil. How come they're growing so quickly? Where are their roots able to find oxygen? When we start to examine roots, we'll probably find these very close to the surface. How sustainable is that? Um, I'm finding more questions than answers at the moment, and I, I want to hear a lot more too. If you plot the height over time, I, I was going to only plot it annually, but <laughs> took an interim measure and just got uh, too, too interested. It's, it's really curious what we're seeing, so now we take them fairly regularly. The bottom two lines, tree 11 and 16, the fastest growth rates we've observed are trees in sites that are polluted with oxygen, um, with, with gas leaks, no oxygen. Interesting. If we take those two trees out of the sample and calculate the means, that's what we found. Uh, the first two are seven months apart after planting. Um, fairly steady at the start where we're watering all the trees, um, no roots out to the pavement, no, no extension of roots under the different pavement. We didn't expect to see any results. We didn't expect to see any difference in February 2011. Um, but between November 2010 and Feb 11, over the summer period, the permeable paved trees grew 4 and 5% of their height at the start of that period. The controls grew 2%. So they're extracting more moisture from the soil. Soils are drier under permeable paving. They're using it here. Uh, it's not reflecting in the neutron profiles. Uh, interesting. Who's used a, a Shoreland uh, pressure bomb? Well, they don't look like that. If you buy one, a commercially produced one, they, they look quite good. If you've got no capital budget, you make one out of parts through a maintenance budget, it looks like this. Um, Stephen from University of Adelaide has been helping us out, a uh, plant physiologist. The theory is you take a leaf off the tree, put it through the cap, it's sealed in by a, a rubber grommet, screwed in, you put the cap down on the pressure vessel here, screw that leaf inside this pressure vessel with this stalk extending out the top. Um, you open up the valves, charge it with high pressure nitrogen and under that pressure, force the moisture in the leaf back out through the leaf stalk. The pressure at which you see a bead of moisture appear on the stalk 
So the theory goes, is the tension on the moisture in the leaf when you took it from the tree? That makes sense. So what's actually happening here is there's a, a tug of war between the atmosphere and the soil. Think of a tug of war with a rope, turn it this way, change the, the rope to a chain of water molecules from the edge of the substomatal cavity to the, the soil through all the resistances, through the roots, the root membranes, through the stalks, leaves. Um, so you're measuring the tension of that water column at the leaf. We're looking to relate all of these things and everything else that's in the proceedings back to the different pavement types to see what sort of impact they're having. And if we plot that tension, um, what you get, numerous more graphs like this, this is just one example, a really low tension pre-dawn. You notice the, the headlight um, Stephen had there. Uh, it was getting pretty dim. We'd been there about three hours at that stage. Uh, Pre-dawn moisture tension on the leaf, you think um, stomatal conductance during the day, high tension, sun goes down, stomata close, you've got a closed system, and it starts to come back into equilibrium with the amount of soil moisture. So by taking that tension, we've actually got a measure of the soil's suction on the water. And Don's going to speak more about that directly. I'll finish up straight away, Don. Um, interesting, the highest pressure we ever recorded was 4,000 kPa. That's about 600 psi suction on the moisture in there. Trees performing a, a service, stormwater management, draining. That's going to be huge in the future. It's such exciting work, you, you even get the academic supervisors out of the office and into the street on occasion. Uh, we'd been there pr since pre-dawn and Don arrived that morning tea time, really. <laughs> I think he thought it was a cappuccino machine. But anyway, I'm going to hand over to Don now. Ah, yes, all right. I think I'll leave that. Yeah, um, yes, I'm the civil engineering part of all this, uh, with a, an interest in trees and plants for some years since I joined CSRO. What was it, some 30 years ago, 35 years ago, which I was my age. But uh, nonetheless, I've been interested in how trees and buildings interact, trees and pavements, etc. And it's always been a bit of a puzzle to me to try to work out the water demand of trees. So I've been interested in a couple of um, recent research uh, projects looking into precisely that. And some of the equipment that uh, was shown, such as the um, xylem pressure chamber, uh, the pressure bomb, if you like, um, has been developed with that in mind. Likewise, we've purchased uh, a, a, an AP4, Delta T AP4 leaf conductance uh, equipment, which has been used uh, for leaf pyrometry. Right, so my interest is mainly below ground, so I'll, I'll stick with that. Um, and I'll start with soil suction, so I'm trying to explain... Uh, the basics of how civil engineers think about the soils, how it is desiccated, how movement uh, occurs. So first of all, we have to sort of understand suction, and it's not that difficult. It's a negative water potential, same as what's in trees. Uh, it's a little bit different, of course. Uh, as I've got down there, soil suction resists tree water potential. So the soils suck, but the uh, trees do too. And it's a battle of wills. And unfortunately for the tree, the soil generally wins out, at least at uh, shallow depths. 
All right. Now, the suctions I'm talking about are huge in soils. It's of the order of thousands of kilopascals or kilonewtons per square metre. Per square metre. And so we often use a logarithmic unit, and you'll see a couple of plots later that show that. The field capacity for total soil suction is around about 100 to 10,000 kPa. And 100 would be a field saturated, basically. It would be a matrix suction if you need a suction. Matrix suction would be zero, but the total suction might be about 100 or so. And the um, upper end of 10,000 would represent a, a dam dry soil, which has shrunk and cracked. Okay, so we're looking to see moisture in moisture changes in the soil, and uh, uh, Tim's already explained that we'll, we are using the neutron moisture meter to do that, at least qualitatively at this stage. And we go back every now and then and check out the soil suctions. With those soil suctions, we can do something about ground movements. We can check out why the ground has moved. If we have some idea of soil reactivity, which is uh, the ground movement, um, soil movement, uh, vertical soil movement per unit change in suction. And that unit change in suction is a log unit change. I apologise, my uh, slides have been curtailed like some of Tim's. So we commonly use in Australia a thing called the Shrink Swell Index. Uh, there is a paper in the ASTM journal that was published with myself and Stupidius some years ago, uh, if you want to look that up. It's a very simple test that you do a well, a shrinkage test, and you do a little swell test. It doesn't take very long. And you can get this idea of reactivity. And the reactivity index that you get out of it is that little thing there, the ISS, and it can range between 0 to 10%. Of course, 0, sands aren't reactive, silts aren't very reactive, clay's uh, quite reactive, and it depends on the plasticity of the clay, how high you get in that range. In Adelaide, I suppose we're looking anywhere between zero and, well, probably 8%, I suppose. All right. Now, the moderately reactive soils are probably sitting at around 3 to 4% um, vertical strain per log of kilopascals. Now, we had to try and understand why the sites were moving up and down, so we decided to take some uh, tube samples of the red-brown earths at the site. And they are just red-brown earths, they're not particularly uh, reactive. They're good, solid, stiff clay. They are plastic. It's not like the silty loams we heard about in, uh, from uh, Justin Morganroth yesterday in New Zealand. These are stiff clays. So at least in the upper layers, they are silty clays with some gravel and possibly calcium carbonate, which I think I heard somebody have a talk, uh, somebody talking uh, recently about carbonate problems in their soils, etc. We have highly alkaline soils in most of Adelaide. There's the samples. Um, these are at least the tube samples for the shrinkage part of the test. And you can see there basically uh, they've got the numbers on 7, 13, 10. They relate to the sites. T1, this one's cracked up a bit as it shrank and it's got a bit of a lump in it indicating perhaps it's got a bit of gravel. So good stiff materials that hang together. And these were the results we got out of those eight tests. I think only we got seven results. One uh, was too poor a sample to uh, test. Uh, in the top half metre, 
uh, along the sites from test site one. We've got, as I said before, the shrinkage uh, sample looked a bit ratty. And yes, it was a bit gravelly. So consequently, the reactivity was down. Uh, but these ones down the other end of the site were a little bit more reactive. This one's in between. At depth, we found, unfortunately, we should have tested at one metre as well, but at depth at one and a half metre, we found that the uh, material wasn't all that reactive generally. And there was only really one site, one site there uh, at 13, that we actually found some reasonable reactivity to report. Basically because of the uh, calcium carbonate and whatever else was in it. So to conclude from that little sampling exercise, the near surface soils at sites 13 and 10 were moderately reactive, the 3 to 4% type thing. Near surface soils at levels uh, sites 1 and 7 are less reactive and the level of reactive, uh, reactivity is affected by non-reactive inclusions. Uh, going the wrong way. Well done. Now, this shows uh, another research site, but it shows people using a simple dumpy level to get curb levels. Uh, so you can do that, and that's what's been done at our site at Mitcham in East Parade. Uh, curb levels have been measured periodically. The datum readings were taken in November 2009, although the actual installations and the neutron moisture meter, etc., were done in June 2009 or July. And the reduced levels were unfortunately based on an arbitrary datum. Uh, let Tim get away with this. Uh, perhaps um, I could complain about the lack of funding. And yes, it does cost to put in a uh, deep benchmark. But we have subsequently done that because of some observed problems with uh, consistency. From those levels with the arbitrary datum, we found that the ground has generally moved upwards there's been a heave and the maximum heave <coughs> wasn't a big deal it was only 15 millimeters so it's nothing much to complain about or write home about so they're fairly reactive soils but they haven't moved much so the moisture movement hasn't been enough to generate great movement at this stage that was at site one which is interesting because it's a lower end of reactivity there was some settlement shrinkage in the middle of the uh, street between sites 7 and 13, and that was about a, a 10 millimetres or so. The overall movements, this chart is actually given in the uh, paper and is probably easier to uh, see. Have I lost my last site? No, I haven't. Uh, but yeah, the controls are highlighted here. You've basically got um, the cumulative movement, and really you're only looking between uh, minus 10 and plus 10 millimetres, not much movement at all so far, but it's early days yet. And as was said before, mainly swell, so positive movement, but settlement down through here and some uh, swell through the upper end of the sites. So the, should come up, the maximum settlement was there and I've lost part of the slide, but the maximum uh, swell was on the other side. And Tim was very keen to put this slide up, and uh, yes, I have to agree with him. There's not much to write home about about the uh, level changes so far. There's a lot more to be done. 
it's only uh, a temporary uh, conclusion. But as yet, there are no discernible movements, differences in surface movements between the different uh, pavement types. Now, the neutron moisture meter counts can be analysed, and uh, we looked at those raw readings and we uh, normalised them uh, for accounting. Uh, you normally put the neutron moisture meter in a box, which is the housing box, or in a tub of water, whichever you prefer, and you take a standard count and you normalise against the standard count. So the raw count is divided by the standard count. And as Tim said, it generally was less than one, but around about 0.7 was the average. Uh, generally, that ratio varied between 0.6 and 0.8. Now, we looked at the neutron moisture meter readings near the kerb, where we took the movement uh, measurements, or the level measurements, and we averaged the ones at half metre and one metre depth on the assumption that most of the movement should have happened in that top metre or so. And then we plotted all that information up. And you can see there that basically we've got a lot of negative changes in uh, the count ratio, meaning, meaning basically that there was less reflection and therefore there should have been less water and therefore the soil should have shrunk over that time period. Now, if you recall the level plot, it showed some swelling up here, swelling up here, shrinkage through here. So that wasn't a particularly satisfactory answer, and we need to do some more work on that. So to cut the story a little bit, make it a bit shorter, we can say that the neutron moisture meter that we have used generally checks out with other data that we've got. We did go back to the sites and we got some suction profile information. Yeah, good, that shows just. There's your neutron moisture meter count ratio, 0.5 to probably one over here, 0.9, whatever. And these are the uh, moisture data uh, for FT7, 18 and one. And you can see that one indicates a fairly high moisture count ratio, seven, quite dry. In contrast, the suctions we took in the same period in June 2010, that would be, not June 2011, uh, yeah, same sort of deal, except we get a switching because uh, an increase of count ratio should be a reduction of suction. And so you see, uh, basically, FT7 over on this side, and FT1 on the far side. So fairly sympathetic, fairly, uh, what shall I say, encouraging results. I've never been a firm believer in uh, neutron moisture meter as being a quantitative tool. I think it is qualitative, but it was very good to see the uh, uh, agreement with the suction data. So having that suction data from the installation of the neutron moisture meters plus in June 2010, we could make some estimates with the reactivity or shrink swell data. And we estimated there should have been about 15 millimetres of uh, shrinkage settlement estimated for site seven, that should be, and no movement for site one. And you can see that in the suction plots here, 
where we've actually got, I hope, FT1 between the two dates. Basically, it was installed and the suction profile was like so. And then later, it uh, transferred over to here in June 2010. And so there's a big difference in suction and there's a reasonably sizable soil movement. On the other hand, FT1 uh, went from those little arrows, basically showed some, uh, well, basically some drying down here, wetting down here, the two balance, nothing happens, no result. So, sorry to bring you into that soil engineering territory, but uh, it sort of uh, needs to be done. It's all part of, uh, well, the arborist should take some of this on board because it comes very much into its own when you talk about the potential for building damage and, and trees. You need some of that sort of data to get a hold on uh, whether a tree has caused some damage or not. And I do agree with people who say, well, we had a complaint this morning about people putting in, engineers in particular, putting in one pager on, oh, the building's too close, must have affected this, this and that. Uh, you do need to do some more. Uh, I will put in a plug for the engineer though. The reason they do that is because they can't afford, they know the uh, client generally can't afford the fees. Anyway, so just on a gentle wrap-up, not much to say at the moment, but uh, Tim has highlighted that we did get increased tree growth in permeable pavers under permeable, um, permeable paving lots. There was no significant difference in movement of fairly reactive soils. We know they're reactive at the surface, not so reactive down low over different pavement types. I did a, a little uh, site classification numbers for those sites and they'd probably be in for those of you familiar with it in the Australian standard for uh, residential slabs and footings, they'd probably come up as a site class H or thereabouts. Okay, and so promising, yes. Perhaps we can get away with the increased moisture infiltration. Uh, we have had Simon Beecham from the University of South Australia look at our plots and say, well, there's a propensity to gather so many litres of water, it will help the growth of the trees, in the long term it will be a proportion of what the uh, tree, uh, tree will need. It won't satisfy all its needs. But we do what we can, particularly in a uh, constricted site such as Eastern Parade. Uh, future plans are quite uh, uh, numerous. We do have to do some more further soil suction profiling without uh, uh, destroying the sites too much or disturbing them too much and we have to uh, look at those movement analyses in light of our new uh, benchmark. We will have more seasonal measurements of leaf water potential using the uh, pressure chamber, leaf conductance using the AP4 and pleased to report we'll be able to get leaf area index uh, seasonally uh, on a regular basis. We now have a LICOR 2200 to play with. And as Tim already mentioned, we, we, will, we are dedicated to looking at non-destructive excavation of tree roots. I'm not sure how we do non-destructive, but it'll be partly destructive, to study the root development. And that's one of the key issues in all this, where the roots have gone, where they're existing. And so thank you for your time.
This concludes Tim Johnson and Donald Cameron's talk on trees, stormwater, soil, and the civil infrastructure. If you would like to learn more about trees and land development, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the book Reducing Infrastructure Damage by Tree Roots, a compendium of strategies. There's also the online learning center course, Trees and Construction. If you'd like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for the quiz is SA4625. Again, SA4625. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer Every day, climb with the ISA